Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the April 30th episode of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objective is to discuss what is known about post-COVID-19 syndrome or long COVID. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Eli Lilly and Company, as well as in-kind support by DKB Med LLC. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Chung, an Assistant Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and Neurology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, who will share about his experience at the Johns Hopkins Post-COVID Clinic. Dr. Chung, Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Yeah, thank you so much, Faith and Dr. Chung. Thank you so much for joining us for a second conversation with a focus now on managing uh, often challenging patients who unfortunately have these ongoing uh, symptoms after uh, COVID-19. For many years, I've sort of picked bits and pieces from a variety of places to treat people that have post-treatment Lyme disease symptoms, for example, borrowing a little bit from rheumatology and fibromyalgia or irritable bowel or the migraine specialists. Uh, I know in our first segment, we talked a little bit about um, Uh, POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and that's been your focus. But what kind of advice, uh, once you're pretty sure that you're dealing with uh, uh, persistent symptoms after COVID-19, how do you sort of approach patients and and, uh, articulate ways to get them feeling better? Right. So uh, first of all, um, like you talked about the first part of the discussion, you know, there are probably kind of variety of various conditions that can, you know, um, make PASC or post-COVID syndrome. So, um, and of course, my clinic is focused more on POTS or autonomic dysfunction after COVID-19. And to get there, uh, of course, I'd like to rule out some other causes. Uh, as I mentioned in the first part of the talk, uh, kind of look, uh, want, want to rule out you know, potential pulmonary embolism, which is uh, blood clotting in the lung. Uh, or inflammation of the heart, or uh, cardiac arrhythmia, some other things that you know are kind of outside of my expertise for sure. Uh, now, I still see quite significant significant portion of uh, post-COVID syndrome patient having those symptoms from autonomic dysfunction, um, and and uh, basically speaking, uh, their chronic fatigue, brain fog, and those typical symptoms. Uh, are very similar to what I see in POTS population, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And underlying, uh, we think this is some autonomic nerve dysfunction. As a result, they fail to regulate their blood volume. So I often give this analogy to my patients. So imagine 
um, you know, people are water balloon that's attached to a pump. So normal person, when you stand up, the pump squeeze the water balloon so it doesn't collapse. Uh, parts or autonomic dysfunction, basically I call this a pump failure. The pump is not working. They're not able to regulate their blood volume so that on the tilt table or when they're standing up from the lower position, it collapse. And that's when they have uh, kind of orthostatic intolerance, meaning you know, they feel very uncomfortable when they stand up or having brain fog, chronic fatigue, and other things. Um, so there are two different approaches to the treatment. Uh, there are, you know, obviously, uh, intuitively, you want to fix the pump first. But that's kind of a little, uh, I feel like uh, I, the science is not there yet. Uh, we still have to figure out how the pump is broken, why it's broken, where in the pump is broken. We are not there yet, unfortunately. It will be more disease-modifying treatment if we figure that out. And that's uh, something that we can talk about uh, future research direction. Now, but that's not the bad news. We, we, there's still something we can do about it. If you focus on the water balloon, uh, think about uh, filling the balloon with the water and expand the balloon. What happens is that it's going to build up pressure and you're still not gonna need the pump. You can still, uh, it's still not gonna collapse. So that's the basis of rationale for what is called volume expansion therapy. And I, I always tell my patients that this, this is not a rehydration therapy because I'm not, uh, they're not dehydrated. It's a volume expansion therapy. So they have to actually drink a lot of water and salt to keep the water in there. And another thing that I want to also emphasize is that there, uh, drinking water and salt is probably one of the most important uh, thing they have to do um, uh, for volume expansion. And I see quite a bit of results uh, if they really drink a lot of water and salt. Uh, as, I mean, their symptoms can be very debilitating and severe, but as simple as just drinking a lot of water and salt can quite improve their symptoms. And the second thing is, um, uh, the, when I say volume expansion, it's not the, uh, just drinking water and salt. There are a lot of ways to achieve that. For example, there's a mechanical way uh, by wearing compression stocking and uh, abdominal binder, they can mechanically literally just pump the blood against the gravity and they can help. Um, you know, personally, uh, for some people who are completely debilitated, I sometimes give just volume uh, IV saline bolus, uh, you know, here and there, uh, whenever they are really, really debilitated, uh, which is not a long-term solution. Uh, to me, uh, the best long-term solution is uh, physical exercise. Uh, and I, I consider physical exercise as a part of volume expansion therapy uh, because the rationale is because basically you're using skeletal muscle as a pump. And that pump is actually a very powerful pump. Uh, you can increase blood volume by a lot more than you know, one liter of IV saline bolus or just drinking a lot of water. The tricky thing about that is that um, you know, a lot of patients have exercise intolerance. They cannot tolerate exercise. So uh, you have to be very careful when you try to exercise. A lot of you know, clinicians, they just tell patients to uh, go to gym and try to figure out what they do, uh, try to be active. But a lot of my patients, they try to be active. It's just that they can't do it. Uh, I usually you know, work with the physical therapists uh, in our team who understand POTS and they have to start very low and gradually increase their capacity. And that's basic uh, big picture for the volume expansion and treatment for them. Well, that's that's uh, really helpful. I know over the years, people have tried things like Fluorinef and mm -hmm. salt and water supplementation, um, 
integrated exercise therapy has been looked at as well as you talk about. Right. But the, the data is all sort of checkered, isn't it? Um, when careful studies are done, or is it that we're just not doing it in the right combination? Or, um, you know, there hasn't been a home run uh, uh, clinical research study that says, aha, this is really what helps most people. And, you know, there are people that use neuromodulators, other use cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, there, so there, there seems to be a lot and I always end up tinkering with an individual patient. But um, what's your take on the state of what's known? And it's obviously not pertinent to COVID because people look at it for Gulf War syndrome. They've looked at it for some of the um, uh, CSF myalgic encephalitis and so yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there are actually uh, quite a few things that I want to talk about there, first of all. Um, so first of all, I mean, if you do just individual research intervention for water drinking, exercise, on certain symptoms uh, of parts or dysautonomia, uh, it actually works. I mean, there are pretty good evidence for that. But a couple of things that uh, people have to consider is that, first of all, um, it's pretty chronic condition. A lot of my parts patients, I think there's a little bit of kind of a, a confusion from uh, previous kind of uh, studies from mostly coming out of pediatric uh, you know, journals that you know, one third of patients just get better, if they grow out of it, probably turn out to be not true, um, uh, in fact, they actually have it for a very long time. It's just that it kind of waxes and wanes over time. So that, you know, sometimes they just feel better without any treatment, but they can get worse too. So you have to kind of look at the long-term um, aspects of this condition. So if you do intervene with certain drug or exercise, whatever, you may get better, but then long-term, you may turn back. So just have to kind of, um, you know, educate patients that this is a long battery, it's a marathon. Uh, and, you know, bone expansion, even including exercise, is not a magic therapy. Uh, you know, it has its limitation, but I always tell my patients that, you know, until we have better research and science, my immediate goal is to, uh, uh, to send you back to kind of close to normal function so you can go back to school or work, but I'm not, I'm not promising any magic therapists uh, with some magic in the movement or exercise or magic drugs. Um, so... Uh, so that's kind of one aspect of it too. And again, like I said, you know, we are not addressing kind of really the disease modifying treatment. We're not really addressing basic pathophysiology. So there's quite a bit of limitation as well. So I think having practical expectation with certain treatment is very important. But I also convince patients that, um, especially for exercise treatment, it's not one of the things they can get better after a couple of weeks of physical therapy. In my experience, it usually takes months of trying. So, uh, you know, not to give them the middle of their exercise treatment is also very important, too. So try to look at the kind of big picture. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, often an underrated perspective because so many of these patients, I feel, are very frustrated. Mm -hmm. They may have been dismissed or not considered. And of course, we're talking about the larger field of mm -hmm. people that might have fatigue, brain fog symptoms, but... Uh, you know, I think just knowing that uh, there's a treatment path, that you, a physician is willing to work with them to get them better, that they're setting expectations over a long term because so many people are looking for that magic bullet 
and are doctor shopping or right. or or trying to find something that's going to get them fixed in a hurry, the good old American way. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, I, I think this is, and again, that uh, many people are just afraid you're missing something or that's why people try all sorts of interventions in the alternative medicine field because they're so frustrated and they're yeah. doing coffee enemas or hyperbaric <laughs> oxygen and, you know, all sorts of things in an attempt to get to feel better, which is understandable. Yeah, no, I can't. I really sympathize with them. Like it, it's very frustrating. I mean, they they have this kind of very debilitating condition for a very long time. But sometimes I, you know, in a way, I work uh, uh, really closely with our physical therapist, and you know, it's very beneficial that you know, of course, they come back and still complaining uh, of these uh, this debilitating symptoms. But sometimes I just kind of show them their like, physical performance uh, compared to when I first saw them, like in a couple of years ago, and now. I mean, I think that's still uh, kind of psychologically as well. It's kind of convincing that it's going into the right way. I'm as frustrated as other patients that I want more better therapy uh, through science and research. Um, but I also understand science, it takes a little time uh, and a lot of money, as you all know. Um, but I think we are getting there. And especially after COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of doctors and scientists are really getting more and more interested in this part of dysautonomia and recognize that this is a real problem. So I'm actually hoping that there will be something out of this whole you know, pandemic <clears throat> uh, time. Now, for, for people that may not have the more severe end of the spectrum, mm -hmm. um, uh, so they don't maybe have dysautonomia that that's mm -hmm. that obvious, but they're still mm -hmm significantly troubled. Um, mm -hmm. What kind of advice do you have there? So they may not end up in your clinic. Um, what mm -hmm. kind of advice would you give to clinicians that are trying to help those people that may not need the volume expansion, but yet, and so on? Um, yeah, there, it's a, like you said, actually, the spectrum of disability or severity of the symptoms are pretty wide. And I have a patient who's actually doing working full-time, a pretty physical job, uh, from, from there and somebody who's staying in bed almost all the time. For somebody who has a little lighter symptoms, not completely debilitated, uh, I think really the uh, exercise treatment is probably best choice. They don't have to go through really long periods of preconditioning. And they will, I mean, a lot of them, if you, if you ask them, they will, they already know that if they run around a little bit, they feel better. It's kind of interesting if you ask them, you know, if anybody exercise, like run on the treadmill for 45 minutes, we burn the calorie, we get, we, we get exhausted a little bit because we burn the calorie. But these people, they get more energy after exercise that they actually continue exercise. And, uh, and you know, healthy diet and you know, those continuous cardiovascular training is very important for them to keep you know, their function. Now, one, one of the other attributes, and maybe it's a subset that you can give some insights to, or some people have what seem to be pretty classic post-exertional fatigue. Uh -huh. they, they do something, um, they suddenly clean their house, and they're like for uh -huh. two weeks, mm -hmm. um, they're flat on their back. And these are often people that might have some good days and bad days. Mm -hmm. You know, they, yeah. Again, they're not in that severe spectrum that you've talked about, but uh -huh. they almost feel like yeah, any kind of exertion just puts yeah. them in bed. I actually want to uh, emphasize that's actually a very good point. Uh, Post-exercise malaise uh, or you know exercise intolerance is actually I feel like that's one of the most dramatic symptoms of postural dysautonomia. I think there's something about the sympathetic nervous system 
that's really playing a important role in exercise. And these people actually can't do it. And they, if they overdo it, they always have more malaise or their symptoms flare up. Uh, so actually as a, as a uh, clinical providers, dismissing those symptoms uh, is usually counterproductive. I usually don't do that. And actually this is a pretty real problem. That's actually why they can uh, over, they shouldn't overdo it. To give you an example, I have actually, you know, uh, not to reveal any identity, but I have a patient who was in, uh, you know, almost Olympic level athlete. And after having pots, uh, she had a hard time just, you know, going up one flight of stairs. So that's how dramatic it can be. Uh, and this is actually a real problem, but that exercise intolerance can improve through really long-term exercise training. They just have to be careful and uh, uh, we should never dismiss those symptoms because it can be very, very severe. So, so if you hear those sets of symptoms that may trigger, let's give some consideration if there could be more of a dysautonomia present uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to just wondering if they have sleep apnea, for example, right. or right. or some alternative condition. Right. Uh, so, so it, it sounds like there is um, certainly a lot of interest, and I hope hope uh -huh. in understanding this larger field. But uh, driven, uh, if there is a silver lining to this terrible uh, pandemic, um, when is it too soon to consider that someone has uh, post um, uh, COVID uh, type symptoms? Um, generally speaking, I like to make sure that, um, you know, this is not, you know, again, just I mean, so-called post-viral uh, symptoms or just lingering symptoms because they have quite severe uh, infections. So, you know, if you look at the technical, I mean, the textbooks, um, um, they usually say they have different symptoms more than six months or so. Um, it doesn't have to be six months. It's very arbitrary. I mean, if they have uh, symptoms more than three to six months, I think, and also, especially the symptoms of waxing and waning, I feel like they may have some, you know, actual uh, post-infectious, maybe some autonomic dysfunction there. Uh, less than three months or so, um, you know, I, you know, it's hard to, you know, differentiate. So, roughly speaking, to me, three months or six months is kind of a range that I feel like they may have actual post-COVID syndrome versus just lingering symptoms from severe infections. Well, Dr. Chung, I really wanted to thank you for some of your uh, management insights. Uh, often these patients need so much help and it's just fabulous. There's someone as dedicated as you, not only to helping these patients, but uh, furthering the field in research. So thank you so much for spending some time today. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.